To survey aliens in pop culture, it's easy to find stories of secret bases where reverse-engineered alien technology is housed, alien abductions by the quota, and imagery of cows being transported into UFOs through light beams. That last bit of imagery is so prevalent it's hard to go a week without seeing it. The most persistent of these elements is the UFO crash, and since the late 1940s, the landscape of the American Southwest has seemingly been littered with crash saucers and dead alien bodies. These stories were largely dismissed until the late 1970s when Leonard Stringfield, Stanton Friedman, and Bill Moore brought them back in a big way. Roswell, a case that had gone largely unnoticed, suddenly became the clay upon which all saucer crash tales are built. Most of the information was second or third hand, but through a small group of witnesses including Mac Brazel, Jesse Marcel Sr., and Barney Barnett, there emerged a tale of two crash saucers, later reduced to one, and dead alien bodies scattered across the New Mexico desert. It was through the Roswell crash that we learned of other crashes in Kingman, Arizona, Aztec, New Mexico, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and even Nazi Germany. Those dang Nazis. On June 5th, 2023, a bombshell article appeared on the debrief. Whistleblower David Grush, a former Air Force officer and intelligence official, claimed that he had been shown documents from other officials claiming that the U.S. government had a crash retrieval program and that there were dead pilots from these craft, and that one such craft was recovered from fascist Italy in the mid-1940s during the Second World War. Grush filed a whistleblower complaint with the U.S. Office of the Intelligence uh, Community Inspector General so that this information could be shared with the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He also claims retaliation from said complaint. Whether you think Grush is, quote, a guy who says he knows a guy who knows another guy who heard from a guy that the government has alien spaceships, as Adam Frank puts it, or whether you think his claims are legitimate. It's important to emphasize that these claims are not new, and with this series, I intend to show you how they all emerged from the same time period and have recycled themselves continuously since the 1980s. But first, we need to head back to the 1970s to talk about a phenomenon called livestock mutilation. Livestock mutilations are violent jokes tied to the UFO phenomenon, but if you were to ask a UFO investigator in the 1970s, they would quickly distance themselves from the topic. Quick to point the finger, UFO researchers would shift the blame to a highly organized cult, uh, cutting up animals for magic rituals. The idea is dumb on the face of it, but if you want your subject taken seriously, you'll do whatever you can to distance yourself from the topic. As Daniel Kagan and Ian Summers put it in their 1983 book, Mute Evidence, quote, The cattle mutilation phenomenon cries out for colorful, riveting language. It is full of images. Stiff, dead, grotesquely 
lacerated animals silently implying bloodthirsty activity by night. Frantic county sheriffs desperately rushing around to capture seeming phantoms. Angry ranchers patrolling their land with shotguns and CB radios. Massive state police task forces shrugging home empty-handed. Strange lights in the sky. Veterinarians scratching their heads in bewilderment. Mendacious scientists lying their way through a gigantic cover-up. A small army of dedicated cattle mutilation buffs ferreting their way across the country and through bushels of newspaper clippings in, order, in search of an answer. Mysterious figures in hooded robes. This phenomenon has it all. And I think the general uh, assumption is that it is all UFOs. And it is not. And there is some evidence to suggest that there may be human culprits at work. But... The animal, the animal mutilation game is one of soft tissue, often sex organs, ears, eyes, tongues, udders, and anuses are removed with such precision and efficiency that it would have only been the work of aliens. To quote David Perkins in the introduction to Christopher O'Brien's book, Stalking the Herd, quote, most theories centered on the litany of saucers, Satanists, or the CIA. Many communities divided into four camps. Those who believed the mutes were the work of space aliens and flying saucers, collecting cow parts for reasons unknown. Two, those who felt bloodthirsty cultists were responsible. Three, those who thought that some branch of the U.S. government was responsible, perhaps clandestinely, testing chemical-slash-biological weapons. And four, those who were certain that the so-called mutilators were the work of common predators such as coyotes and buzzards, end quote. On April 20th, 1979, Harrison Schmidt, a U.S. senator from the state of New Mexico, convened the first multi-state mutilation conference. Gathered together for the first time was a panel of mute experts that included David Perkins, Tom Adams, who gave a presentation on the connection between mutilations and sightings of unidentified helicopters. Law enforcement officials also gave presentations, such as Captain Keith Wolverton, a deputy from Cascade County, Montana, who told of a flurry of strange activity that included the discovery of a cult ceremonial site, strange tall hairy figures at two mutilation sites, strange lights being seen over Mounts from Air Force Base's ICBM Minutemen missile sites, strange hooded figures, and mysterious helicopters. Schmidt's conference failed to bring the FBI to the table to investigate these strange incidents, citing a lack of jurisdiction, and Schmidt himself would fail to seek re-election after putting on this conference. So what brought him to do it? Well, to figure that out, we need to go back 12 years. The San Luis Valley had been a hot spot that summer for strange lights and craft in the sky. Dozens more were reported that fall in the world's largest alpine valley. The King family, one of the most prominent ranching families of the valley, settled there in the late 1870s. The King Ranch sat on 2,000 acres at the foot of the mountains, and in 1967, four members of the family lived there. Harry King ran the ranch along with his brother Ben. Their sister Nellie, along with her husband Burl, lived in a cabin on the upper ranch. The matriarch of the family, Agnes King, lived there as well. That would make it five people, but you're doing great, Rob. 
The Kink family reported seeing quote-unquote mini-jets around 10 to 12 feet long over their ranch in early 1967. These objects were known to dive bomb at cars, driving through the nearby sand dunes, disappearing into the nearby hills, and when I mean into, I mean it seemed like they were going to crash right into them, only to disappear. It was the belief of some that there was an entrance in the hill, though none was ever found. Strangely, though, as Chris O'Brien documents in Stalking the Herd, quote, in 2003, a pair of hikers observed a 15 to 20 foot high doorway that was, that was located high up on the cliffs located just south of the Great Sand Dunes. After an arduous climb to the site, no doorway could be found. There have been other similar reports through the years. Now, if that doesn't have your flesh pedestrian ranch hackles on high, I don't know what is because it, it it's basically the same kind of stuff. But um, in this case, the San Luis Valley is, um, I would say, just as weird as that other area. Nellie Lewis later recounted that that Mark Conrad, who came out to the ranch following the mutilation, was able to capture one of these objects on camera. It was, quote, An object that's littler than a Piper Cub and has little short stubby wings dived right over the top of the ground by him. Nellie would go on to add, Now, this is the same thing that has been seen here in the daytime by quite a number of people. And as yet, we haven't found out what it is, but we assume it's a jet. Something of our governments, but we don't know what it is. Despite these strange sightings of lights in the sky and mysterious miniature drones, Harry King noticed that something was off. On September 8, 1967, two of the three horses on the ranch were patiently waiting for grain and water. His sister's horse, Lady, a three-year-old mare, was strangely absent. When she failed to show up for food and water the following morning, he went in search of the missing horse. And an hour later, he found the horse, a quarter mile from the main ranch house, lying on her side. The bone that was exposed glistened in the sun, as if it had been sun-bleached for years. The flesh from the tip of her nose all the way to her shoulders was missing. There were no signs of predation, no tracks at all, which was odd given that it had been raining in the days prior to the body's discovery and there was mud everywhere. Here's how Nellie's nephew, Don Hard, described the scene. It looked like the horse had been picked up or something because the tracks were quite a ways from where it was lying. It was found in a meadow under real strange circumstances. The flesh was missing from the head up. Its spinal cord was missing. Its brains were missing. Organs were missing. The bones were white like they'd been laying a long time. The meat was totally cleaned off the bones. Anybody that's ever butchered something, you can't scrape the meat clean off in a field. I guess what impressed me was that the esophagus was cut clean also, and that's some kind of a hard bony type thing. We butchered cattle before, and it didn't look like something just anybody could do. The bones were still clean and white, as if they'd been on the desert or in the sun for quite a while. Later on, I returned to look at it. We looked at it several times, but later on it kind of grew a black growth around the ground. We didn't see any other incisions on the horse, yet they say the blood was missing and the organs are missing. I didn't see any scavengers or birds or anything on it. Our ranch 
we have cattle, and if a cow dies pretty quick, the coyotes dig a hole in it and eat it. It seemed to Nellie like some kind of technology had done it, rather than something someone could pull off as a prank. I didn't think it was a prank. I don't see how something could have done that precisely, to use a precision to cut the flesh in the esophagus, take the spinal cord without damaging the bones. It just seems like something out of this world. I've had a theory that maybe the government has such technology. It could be the government experimenting with new weapons because they did fly around the valley at low altitude trying to evade radar. It was just practice flying, but you could imagine the pilot with a new weapon saying, let's try this out and see what happens. To quote again from Stalking the Herd, quote, Harry King determined that the three horses had been running full speed headed southeast toward the ranch house and Lady had been cut from the herd then veered away from the other two, who continued on toward the house. Lady's tracks continued galloping for several hundred yards, by King's estimate, where they then inexplicably stopped in full gallop. One week later, 15 burn marks were found near the carcass, many of which were in the shape of a question mark. Five giant marks... 18 inches wide by 8 inches deep, were found deeply embedded into the ground near some bushes, which had also been flattened. And these marks were described as oversized hoof prints. Nellie later attested to Ross Henderson and Lonnie Furby from Eastern Texas State U that they had discovered something else that was startling. There was a bush busted down close to the ground. Most of the top of the bush was gone, and it was in an open spot all by itself. And here the ground was all riled up. Now the rest of the ground, it was rain-pebbled, and, you know, but this was freshly riled. And in this I found a glob-like sack of substance, which I didn't touch with my hands, but there was some mane stuck to this sack, and it was the color of the inside of a chicken gizzard, and tough like that but it was shaped sort of like a chicken liver with pyramidish points on it. I jerked this mane hair loose from it and took two sticks and busted it open, and a green paste oozed out of it. Nellie Lewis immediately called the Alamosa County Sheriff's Department to report the incident, but Sheriff Ben Phillips was quick to label the cause of death as a lightning strike. This was odd because there were no burn marks on Lady at all, and Sheriff Ben hadn't actually driven out to the King Ranch to look at the body. Talk about a lazy bitch. Two weeks after the body was discovered, U.S. Forest Service employee Dwayne Martin decided to check for radiation at the site. Heightened radiation readings were detected near the flattened bushes and the burn marks, as well as Burl's boots. Nellie tried to keep the press out, but uh, unfortunately she failed. Everyone flocked to the area to see the carcass of Lady, which would then be dubbed Snippy in the press, and soon after the headlines would read, Flying Saucers Killed My Horse. Now, the King family did a lot to promote the idea a UFO was responsible, but one of the greatest players in the story was a man named Dr. John Altshuler. Altshuler was a hematologist and a pathologist who brought medical care to rural areas of Colorado and New Mexico via airplane, as he was an avid pilot. Kind of a heroic figure to an extent, but also like associated with Linda Moulton Howe. So 
Days after the mutilation of Lady, he was arrested in the nearby sand dunes looking for UFOs because they had been reported all over the place. He was the first to perform a necropsy on Lady and determined that she had been drained of blood. The heart, lungs, brain, thyroid, and abdominal organs were all missing. Outschuler would go on to lecture about the subject with Linda Moulton Howe, a figure who will become much more prominent as this series goes on. The UFO connection was definitive, though. In October of 1967, APRO investigator Don Richmond, along with two college students, Bill McFeedries and one of his friends, photographed mysterious lights over the great sand dunes as they stood on Nellie Lewis's front porch. And I will tell you, Google a picture of the great sand dunes. They are fucking beautiful. Kind of a beautiful place to see UFOs, if you can. NICAP investigators and investigators from the Condon Committee, Dr. Adams and Dr. Fred Ayers, respectively, investigated the case and determined that it must have been a mercy killing from a passing hunter. This didn't make much sense, because Lady sure as hell didn't look like the victim of a mercy killing. She, like... We're, you'll find photos of Lady's carcass online... And when you look at them, they are eerie as fuck, I think is the best way to put it. They are strange. They're unsettling to look at. Um, also, if you're looking at the one where like the, the head has been fully stripped of skin, that was after the necropsy. So just keep that in mind. These investigators also seem to dismiss portions of the story, such as the strange black spots on the property. There was also a strong odor around the body, one that was reminiscent of formaldehyde, that they dismissed as even being there, claiming only to smell thistle. This distrust of the government prevented Nellie from uh, burying the body. I don't want to bury the horse, because the government will say there was no horse. Now, why is our government... I thought they came to, in to investigate. Instead, they came in to discredit and call people liars when they were giving them the truth. The San Luis Valley is a very weird and beautiful place. It was first settled by First Nation tribes, like the Ute, but before they were forced to move in the 1850s as the Mexican people moved further north. And eventually, of course, we came in. The SLV is one of the largest desert valleys in the world, encompassing an area that is 65 miles wide and 125 miles long in the south-central Colorado, dipping into northern New Mexico. It's an area known for sightings of flying humanoids, countless hauntings, and UFOs. In fact, on Highway 17, you will find a UFO watchtower. Again, there were strange sightings of these miniature jets, um, lights over the sand dunes, and Burl Lewis recounted a sighting of what he called a large switchboard-like object from the front porch of his cabin. The lights of it would turn off and on as if they were fireflies, but much, much bigger. UFOs became such a regular thing for the Lewises that Nellie was reported to have kept a diary of all that had been seen. According to Stalking the Herd, 
Chris O'Brien had heard from one of his neighbors, Pam Laborde, that her husband had cleared out one of the Lewis's outbuildings and discovered a strange diary. Quote, the diary turned out to be a handful of loose-leaf pages that Rogers said had contained descriptions of drawings of UFO-type craft, dates, and accounts of visitations, even sketches of strange beings in robes. He said there was a drawing of a triangle and snake emblem that the beings had on their robes. Roger was sure that the pages belonged to Nellie Lewis. It had her name right on it. I was somewhat intrigued, but thought anything having to do with Nellie Lewis was ancient history. End quote. Um, it's interesting to point out this, this insignia with the snake emblem and the triangle, because it's the same emblem, uh, or very similar emblem, that Herbert Shermer saw on the outfits of the beings that abducted him. This is a kind of a insignia that comes up over and over again. And it's one I've talked to certain people about, so it's one to you know keep in mind. Uh, so if you come across other cases involving these triangle insignia with snake-like uh, connections to it, send them my way, ourstrangeskies at gmail.com, uh, at ourstrangeskies on Twitter and Instagram, because I do find that endlessly fascinating. The King property had been purchased by the Universal Education Foundation from Burl Lewis himself, and Roger was cleaning the building when he discovered it and decided to leave it on the kitchen counter and, you know, just come back to it later. The diary went missing the same day, and it was Roger that later remembered that two strange men, clearly not part of the work crew, walked off the property shortly after the pages had been left in the kitchen. They were strangely not dressed in work clothes. The death of Lady had a huge impact on Nellie. According to some friends, she became obsessed with the occult, using Ouija boards and consuming books about UFOs. Cue that Husker Du song. She died by suicide in 1976, the day she buried her mother Agnes. Agnes and Nellie had allegedly remarked to friends that they would pass on to the other side on the same day, and according to one friend, beings would come for her and her mother on the same day. Nellie was found sitting in her car in front of the Iraqa Cemetery, having died from carbon monoxide poisoning. While the Snippy case became the first widely reported cattle mutilation, it was not the first. Uh, during the Mothman flap, the Ohio Valley was host to a few mutilations. In December 1967, a cow was found near Gallipolis, Ohio, with the unkindest cut of all. It had been neatly severed in two as if it had been chopped in half by a giant pair of scissors. The organs and blood in the lower half had all been removed. A nurse who lives on the farm with her two teenage children outside of Gallipolis sought Keel out and told him a long and involved story about her experiences with the objects and their occupants. She keeps cows on her farm, and she claimed that someone was butchering them in her fields. She'd seen the rustlers on several occasions and had gone after them with a shotgun. They're tall men in white coveralls, she explained. And they certainly can run and jump. I've seen them leap over high fences from a standing start. 
The nurse's trouble with cattle rustlers had started around 1963 to 1964. The cattle rustlers, she explained, had ruthlessly butchered a number of her animals very expertly. But they didn't seem to want the choice steak cuts. Instead, they rather pointlessly removed the brains and other organs of little commercial value. And there was never any blood in evidence. She had complained repeatedly to both the police and the FBI. She claimed that an elderly couple who had lived on her property for years had often told her about strange lights in the area. Sightings went back 30 years. A year earlier, we would have put her down as paranoid... Her story smacked of a persecution complex gone amok, but we've heard too many similar tales in our travels to take hers lightly. Farmers in central Pennsylvania were so upset by their losses to the phantom animal mutilators that in 1968 they formed a local organisation to try and catch the culprits. We talked about the Potosi sheep slaying incident on episode 101, which involved this short flying humanoid that had a dagger on a uh, roper or something like that uh, in which he like killed a lot of sheep and wounded a woman like this was scorpion before scorpion was cool in in mortal Kombat. so god that story is so fucked and fucking weird that same year two mps serving at raf upper hayford were sent to visit the location of a mutilated sheep it had been cut clean in half, which they believed was caused by a laser-like implement. No blood was found around the animal. No footprints or tracks, either. Perhaps the most infamous incident of mysterious livestock death occurred on March 13, 1968, south of Dugway Proving Ground. Located south of Salt Lake City, Dugway Proving Ground is often regarded as Area 52, Stories of aliens working with the government leak out, much like they have about the Dulce base, a key fixture later in the series. Uh, Area 51, and even Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Hell, even Rob Lowe visited the gates of Area 52, Dugway Proving Ground, when filming his defunct show, The Low Files. In reality... Dugway's activities were more sinister and exposed the U.S.'s penchant to stockpile chemical weapons and just how hazardous they can be. On the morning of March 14th, ranchers awoke to find thousands of sheep lying dead in their pastures. Dugway was immediately fingered as the culprit but denied any wrongdoing up front as is typical of the U.S. military. However, a week later, U.S. Senator Frank Moss released a memo from the Pentagon that proved otherwise. Turns out, all these sheep had been doused with VX, uh, nerve gas, uh, released via airplane. Following the incident, veterinarians and health officials investigated the matter diligently, finding that the delivery tanks on board the jet that had sprayed them malfunctioned causing the chemicals to be released at a much higher altitude that covered a great distance. Skull Valley is located 27 miles from Dugway. Uh, many of the sheep died within 24 hours after grazing on contaminated grass, but some suffered ill effects for weeks until they finally succumbed. Philip Boffey reported in Science that the animals, quote, generally acted dazed, with their heads tilted down and off to the side, walking in a stilted, uncoordinated manner, end quote. 
The army paid dearly for this. 90% of the funds went to rancher Alvin Hatch, who received approximately $365,000, though the army was nice enough to lend him bulldozers to help bury his sheep. The incident became a battle cry to those in Congress fighting to end fighting for the end of chemical weapon use in Vietnam. It was after an NBC-produced documentary about this incident that led to conversations in Congress. It would be another six years before they officially banned chemical weapons in the U.S. It is, is it by pure coincidence that foot-and-mouth disease broke out in Britain in October 1967, or that the first signs of chronic wasting disease appeared in the fall in northern Colorado and southern Wyoming's deer and elk population that same year. I mean, when we covered that stupid David Politis documentary, he wasn't necessarily off, but having to connect it to national parks and shit and national forests really didn't help his matter. Like, the work has been done, man. All you had to do was read this fucking book, but, you know, that is what it is. There was another curiously dumb event that took place in December of that year. The Atomic Energy Commission, with the help of Lawrence Radiation Laboratory, decided that it would be a great idea to detonate a 29 kiloton nuclear bomb in an attempt to free up natural gas deposits 4,000 feet underground. Well, this turned out to be an incredibly dumb move because it led to radioactive gas being released into the atmosphere. This was all part of Project Gas Buggy. And under the government's plowshare operation, which looked for peaceful ways to use nuclear weapons because they just had to use them so fucking bad. It should be noted, as David Perkins has put it, that in the late 70s, in his research... A lot of mutilation reports came in from areas that were downwind or downstream from areas that were um, that had radioactive materials. They were either mining it, enriching it, weaponizing it, or using it for other purposes. So there's a direct correlation between them and also UFO sightings. So that shouldn't surprise anybody. What started with Snippy would become a nationwide phenomenon by the end of the 1970s. Hell, it was an international phenomenon. It was quiet for a few years after Lady's demise, but would soon spread into the Great Lakes region and upper Midwest, from Minnesota to Iowa, Kansas, Wisconsin, South Dakota, and Nebraska. In fact, livestock rustling also became a thing. It's interesting how the two the mutilations and rustling rose at the same time and became New York Times worthy in 1970. There is an article about it in there. As mysterious as this phenomenon is, the culprits behind it are even more mysterious. Cults, aliens, or government organizations? No definitive answer has ever emerged. From here, a dark phenomenon is going to get even darker. On the next episode, we'll explore the rise of mutilations, the appearance of mystery copters, Bigfoot on the cattle front, cults, and a conference that would lead us down the UFO conspiracy road to Paul Benowitz, Rick Doty, and Bill Moore. Oh, one last thing. The location of that bomb drop, you know, that um, Project Gas Buggy thing, 
That was just 21 miles away from a little place called Dulce, New Mexico. Thank you all so much for listening Um, to the patrons. I am so sorry that I haven't had uh, any bonus material out for y'all in like the last couple months, but we're working on that. We're going to get you some. um, uh, We are putting together a couple scripts for a couple of fascinating stories that um, I stumbled across just cruising through kind of some old ass UFO journals. So um, I hope you enjoy those, uh, but those will be coming at you soon. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. I also have a P.O. box if you, for some reason, want to send me books or um, alien stuffed animals. Uh, Yeah, I'm just making a wish list here. But, like, um, it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. I have been a guest on some podcasts recently, and it's been a while since I've shared anything with with y'all on these. But um, I figure I might as well do it now. So, um... In one of the craziest moments of my life, I made an appearance on Chris Jericho's podcast, Talk as Jericho. Um, If you want to hear me talk about the evolution of aliens and stuff like that, go check out that episode. It's pretty funny. I laugh a lot and he laughs a lot. And, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, I was a guest on my good friend and recent guest Steve Berg's podcast. It's called Hi, as in H-I, comma, Strangeness. Um, Steve's pod is fantastic and you should go check it out for sure. And I was also a guest on a Patreon episode of uh, Ghosts and Hose. You should totally join up with that. Uh, give them money because they're great. They're 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 great. That crew is great over there. So give them some fucking money. As always, you can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Person and I have been making for going on almost a year now. Um It'll be a year in September, but um, you can check us out on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. And we still have some uh, 8x10 prints available. Oh, also, you can check out the high res images on each of our Patreon pages. So his um, Patreon page is over at Create Magic Studios, and mine is at um, uh, patreon.com slash your UFO guy. Uh, you can find links to that. Uh, at ourstrangeskies.com again. Um, but we still have 8x10 prints of the first seven issues, and you can get those at createmagicstudios.com. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. Special thanks to Jay Shank, Darcy Staniforth, and Emily Louise for providing their voice talent to this episode. You can find links to their projects in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or haunting the San Luis Valley. In gray, we trust. Cause I got a lot
Media.